There's a long uh, tradition in Christianity. Uh, nobody knows exactly when and where it started, but Christians on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, would greet one another, and one would say, He is risen. And the other would respond, he is risen indeed. So I would love for us to do that this morning, something I grew up in my house doing with my family. Uh, so let's try that. He is risen. He, is risen he has risen indeed. And that is why we come to celebrate this morning. That's why we gather every Sunday morning, because Jesus is not dead, he is alive. And to be honest, when I was growing up, Christmas was always one of my favorite times. Uh, I, I just, I love the lights I love everything about Christmas, but my second favorite time of year was always Easter. And I think now as I've gotten older, as I've grown in, in my walk, I think it's kind of, kind of the opposite. Uh, I, I always looked forward to Easter as a kid, but probably for not the right reasons. Uh, having an older brother, being the younger brother, I got a lot of hand-me-downs. And Easter was like the one time of year I got brand new clothes that I knew I was going to have something that nobody else had, had worn, at least not in our family. So... Uh, it was an exciting time. Not only that, I love ham. Does anybody love ham? I love ham. And Easter Sunday, it was always mom would, mom would make a ham or we'd get a honey-baked ham, which I always thought as I got older was a little bit ridiculous because we're kind of celebrating the Jewish Messiah. And uh, so we're going to do that by eating ham, something that was not kosher. So I just always thought that was a little funny. But one of the other things I love about Easter is is just when it falls in the year, the springtime. I love beautiful weather. We had an Easter egg hunt in our neighborhood yesterday. Many of you guys helped out with that. There was another Easter egg hunt that some, we had volunteers at, and it was, it's just beautiful weather. But I love how everything starts to come alive after winter. Everything greens up, and there's this new life. This, there's this bright green color that is only found one time a year in nature. Like no crayon can reproduce the bright green colors that we see at this time of year. And it always reminds me of new life. It reminds me of hope. It reminds me that, that there's something good coming after summer. Uh, but there's something new coming. The flowers are blooming. There's new life to be celebrated. And it always brings me hope that the winter's ending, the great weather's coming, and I'll get to be outside more often. And, and I just love this idea because... It, that's exactly what Easter is about. It's about the hope of new life. The hope that new life brings. And this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or your phones, uh, yeah, I'm going to assume you're not doing Facebook. I'm, I'm just going to assume that you're, you're uh, reading your Bibles there. This is one time you can look at your phone in a movie theater and not get kicked out, right? So uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and to give you a little bit of background on this book, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing this book to a church in Corinth that he started. And over, the, over time, they've, they've had some struggles. Paul comes, he preaches the gospel, he stays with them for a while, and then he goes away and he starts hearing about some things that are taking place in the church that are really kind of destructive and not really helpful. And it, it kind of shows that... Um, it shows through a lot of selfishness that they're dealing with. The Corinthians, instead of serving one another and loving one another, they're fighting over power. They're fighting over position. They're bringing things of the world into the church instead of taking the church into the world and changing the world. They're allowing the world to change the church. So they're fighting over power and position. They're, they're struggling with issues like sex and drunkenness and different things. 
And when we get to chapter 15, I think we, we start to understand perhaps the reason why. In chapter 15, Paul's going to talk to them about the resurrection. And you see, in the Greek mind, the Corinthians were in the Greek culture, they, they didn't really believe in the resurrection. And so some of them have kind of started to, to not believe that Jesus was really raised from the dead. And Paul writes and he says, man, if, if we don't believe that, if we don't have the resurrection, if Jesus didn't really die from the dead, you know, raised from the dead, then we have no hope. Our, our faith is in vain. And I think what's happened is, as we start to recognize, if, we, if we're thinking that there's no resurrection from the dead, then what happens is we start to think that this life is all that there is. And we start to try to find our value in the things of this life. And what happens is over and over and over again, we, we try to fill our lives with things from the world, like the Corinthians did, with position and power, prestige, money, sex, addictive behaviors. And we still find ourselves empty. Yet then we think about the life of the Apostle Paul, who had experienced the risen Jesus Christ. And we see how that experience with Jesus Christ, that faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ, brought meaning and hope to his life. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul starts and says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day. Now, the first thing that I want us to see from this passage is that our hope is built on a foundation of facts. Our hope is built on a foundation of facts, and Paul very clearly talks about this. He says, without the death and resurrection, our faith has no purpose. And he goes on and he says, uh, Christ died for, our, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul is stating some absolute facts that are necessary for the Gospel, that are meant to bring hope to our lives. Now when we talk about hope, we have to understand hope in the, in the terms that the Bible uses the word hope. Because a lot of us use the word hope and we say things like, I hope I get a basket full of Reese's eggs. Because everybody knows that's the best Easter candy there is. Second would be Cadbury eggs. Although I understand there are some people that don't like those. And I actually heard someone describe it once as chocolate-covered sugar snot. Um, so, which if you think about it, now you all don't like Cadbury eggs. But, you know, we, we hope for these things. You know, we have hope when it comes to Christmas time that I hope I get this gift, but that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it means something is guaranteed to happen and we are just waiting in anticipation for that thing to finally happen. And Paul says, because of the resurrection, we have this hope that we too will be raised. And our hope is not in vain. Our hope is built on facts. Now, there's a couple of questions that come to my mind when I read this passage, and I just want to walk through some of them, because I think some of you may have these same questions. And the first thing I want to say is this, that the reality of the resurrection is so important, because the reality is that a dead Savior cannot save anyone. If Jesus died for our sins, yet remained dead, 
It proves that he didn't do what he said he was going to do, and he's an unworthy object of our faith. The only thing that makes him worthy of our faith is the reality that he did do what he said he was going to do. He died for our sins, and God raised him from the dead. So my first question that I thought of this week is, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And the scripture tells us that he died for our sins. Paul answers that question, that he died for our sins. And I know there are, there are many of us here who, who may not understand that. We, we look at the rest of the world and we think, you know, I'm not so bad. Like, I do more good than I do bad, so I must be all right with God. What we have to realize is that God originally designed us to be in perfect relationship with him. When God created Adam and Eve, they were in perfect relationship. But then something happened. Adam and Eve chose to sin, just like every single one of us has chosen to sin. And when they did, that led to a broken relationship with God, and it led to brokenness in their own lives. And every single one of us has experienced that brokenness. And just like the Corinthians, a lot of times we find ourselves trying to fill that brokenness, trying to heal that brokenness by pursuing power, by pursuing money, by pursuing position, by pursuing things that are addictive, sex, drugs, alcohol. And sometimes we even try to fill that void with religion. We think, well, if I just, if I just can go to enough church services, if I could just give enough money, if I could just be good enough, and we try to fill that void, yet it always leaves us empty because nothing can fill that void. And God knew that that was the case. And so he had a plan all along to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. You see, Jesus was the sinless son of God. He was fully God and fully man. He was uniquely qualified to pay for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What he's saying there is, this is again the Apostle Paul, he's saying that God took our sins and he placed them on Jesus Christ while at the same time taking the righteousness of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man who never sinned, and placing that righteousness on us. So that through faith, our sins are forgiven and when God views us, he no longer views our sin, our brokenness, he views the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And we see that it was, it was his brokenness. He was the perfect one to pay for the penalty for our sins. And I love what Isaiah 53 tells us. Verse 4, Isaiah 53, <clears throat> it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew no sickness. He was someone like people turned away from he was despised, and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we turned in, our regard, and turned in regard him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. That is exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he died for our sins. He bore the penalty that our sin required. But he didn't stay dead. Psalm 16.10 tells us that God did not leave him in Sheol to let his body see decay. On the third day, he was raised again, proving that he had not only conquered sin and death, but to restore us to relationship with God, to bring us out of that brokenness back into relationship with God. 
So the next question that came to my mind this week was, how do we know that Jesus really died? I mean, that was a long time ago. All we have were these old texts, so how do we know that he really died? And I would say the proof is in what Scripture says, which is that he was buried, right? I don't know about you, but uh, I don't typically bury live people. Hopefully none of you do. But we know that he was dead because Scripture tells us that he was buried. And there's a couple things that can really give us some, some solid evidence that this really happened. And the first is the centurions that, that were actually in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. Does anybody know what the penalty was for failing to do your duty as a Roman centurion? Death. So that means if Jesus came down off the cross alive, those centurions would face a death sentence. They would make very sure that Jesus was dead. That's why when he's hanging on the cross, they take the spear and they stick it in his side, and Scripture tells us that blood and water flowed out together, showing that his heart had actually ruptured and the, the fluid around the heart was coming out with the blood. Jesus was dead. There was no question about that. The other thing that's interesting about his burial is that we read that Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body and placed Jesus in his own tomb. Now what's unique about this is that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a Pharisee, part of the very group that condemned Jesus to death and was responsible for him hanging on the cross. And so in the, in the New Testament, when they're writing this, just a few short years after Jesus uh, has, has died and raised from the dead, people reading this would have known who Joseph of Arimathea was. They would have known where his tomb was. They could have very easily said, hey, Joseph, open the tomb. Joseph, did you really get the body? Is the body really there? And Joseph would have been able to say no. So it wouldn't make sense for them to make up this name or include this name of somebody that the people in the early days could have easily gone and asked, hey, is the body really there? And it would have been easily proven that Jesus had not really risen from the dead. So we have enough evidence to prove that our, our hope, our faith is built on fact. It also leads me to the next question, which is, was he really raised? Was he really raised? Let's look at what it says in the next few verses. He says, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and to, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. What I see in these verses is that the hope, our hope, is braced by the experience of others. Paul goes through a long list of people that he says, hey, don't take my word for it. Here's a list of names of people that you can go talk to who saw Jesus alive. You can go talk to them and you can ask them what they saw, what they experienced, and they will testify. What's interesting about this is the, the proof that Jesus rose from the dead was that he appeared, that he appeared. And Paul's saying, you need to go ask other people who've experienced the resurrected Christ. And I want to encourage those of you here this morning who have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ there are many of us here who have been walking with Jesus, who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, and I would encourage you to ask them about their experience with the resurrected Jesus. What does it mean for them? What has faith brought to their lives? And I love that Paul gives, gives a long list of people. In fact, 
He doesn't even list everybody. We know that the first women, the first people at the tomb on the Resurrection Sunday were a group of women who were followers of Jesus. And they go back and they report to the disciples that the tomb is empty. And some of the disciples come running and they see the empty tomb. And later that night, Jesus appears to the twelve. A week later, he appears to Thomas. Everybody remember doubting Thomas? And Jesus says, Thomas, I know you said you won't believe unless you can touch. Touch me. See how alive I really am. Not only that, we read a, a later story about Jesus actually eating fish with his disciples, proving that he was alive. And then Paul tells us that Jesus at one time appeared to over 500 people, and then he says, and some of them are still alive. The implication is this, go ask them what they saw. It's very, very unlikely that 500 people at one time were having a mass delusion. And Paul's saying, hey, these, these 500 a lot of them are still alive. Go ask them what they saw. Go ask what they experienced. And then he goes on and he lists James, the brother of Jesus. Now I want to ask you a question. How many of you have brothers and sisters? How hard would it be for your sibling to convince you that you were God? Or that they were God, right? Okay, so James' brother doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah until Jesus appears to him after the resurrection. And James says, whoa, this is legit. My bad. And then Paul uses himself as an example. If you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, his story is one that he was a persecutor of the church. He gave death sentences. He gave approval for torture of followers of Jesus in the early days of the church. And then one day as he was traveling to execute some of those orders, Jesus actually appears to him on the road to Damascus in a special way. We don't read about Jesus appearing like this to anyone else. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Saul's life is changed. He in fact changes his name. He says, you're now going to be Paul. Because his experience with the resurrected Christ changed him so much and he stops persecuting the church and he becomes one of the greatest builders of the church. One of the, the greatest evangelists for Jesus Christ because of his experience with the resurrected Lord. It was life-changing. Now, I know some of you may be saying, well, yeah, those 12 were Jesus' best friends. They could have really very easily made up the story and... Uh, just made it up and, and pr promoted this lie for the rest of their lives. Well, I want to read this quote to you from Chuck Colson. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it, proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were, weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely not. The other thing that I would add to that is that every single one of the apostles died for claiming to have seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And I would ask you, how many of you would be willing to die for something that you knew was a lie? The proof was in their experience. The proof was in the fact that they had seen 
Jesus raised from the dead. Their experience is meant to bolster our hope, to make it stronger. Let's continue looking at verses 8 through 11. Paul goes on. He says, Last of all, as one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. The last thing I want us to see is that hope is fortified by God's continuing grace in our lives. When we come to experience the resurrected Jesus Christ and we put our trust in the reality that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and we stop trying to do enough good works, we stop putting our hope in the things of this world, and we put our trust in Christ and Christ alone, something happens. It's not just about being saved from hell and spending eternity in heaven. God actually desires for us to experience new life now. And one of the beautiful things about that new life is that it, it's, it's brand new every single day. God's grace continues to work in our life. It's not just a one-time grace at salvation, but God continues to give grace in our lives. I think what most people love about Paul is that Paul had a history. Paul had a history. I know that's one of the things that I can relate to. We all have history. We all have mistakes that we've made in the past. And one of the things that I love about Paul, even though he was one who persecuted the church, even though he was one who stood by while followers of Jesus were stoned to death. He came to know Jesus Christ. God used him to build up the church. Yet Paul never seems to have gotten over his past. See, he knows that God has forgiven him, but every time we hear Paul talk about his past, it seems like he, he always kind of holds on to that. And can you imagine the things that he saw, that perhaps those people's faces that he was responsible for their death flashed before his eyes and he's, ha- he's struggling to forgive himself even though he knows God has forgiven him. And I don't know about you, but I wrestle with the same stuff. I know God has forgiven me, but there are times when, when sin just gets a hold of me and what I need in those moments, what you need in those moments is God can, God's continuing grace. God's continuing grace three times. The Apostle Paul uses the word grace. He's reminding himself, yes, this is my past and I hate it, but God's grace is sufficient for me. God's grace has saved me. God's grace has forgiven me. By God's grace, I am what I am. It's by his grace. And that grace is meant to continue strengthening our faith. Our faith. When we feel unworthy, when we feel like we have to try to earn God's favor, like God's not there, like God's not listening to us, when we lose hope, when things don't go according to our plan and we become anxious because we can't control what's happening around us, what we need is God's grace. And the way we get that is by preaching the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of the facts that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And we remind ourselves that because of that, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 
says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we preach that to ourselves. We remind ourselves of the hope that we have that this life, the struggles that we're going through now, are not the end. That there's something greater to come. I want us, um, at this time, I'm, I'm going to ask Renee Galan. She is uh, Stephen's wife, our associate pastor, is going to come and share her testimony. And I know many of you are probably wondering, you know, all these things happened over 2,000 years ago. How can I be sure that God still works that same way today? How can I know and experience that same hope? And I, I want to have Renee share a little bit of her story. Um, Renee, you've, you've shared with me. You can feel free to have a seat if you want. We know that Paul had a past. Uh, and as you and I have talked about some things, um, you've mentioned that you have a past. Would you be willing to tell us about your past? I would. Um, good morning. It's a good thing you said yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it would be really awkward. No, time to go. Um, so I... I do have a past, and this is the first time I've ever shared in, uh, really in front of more than one or two people. Um, uh, between the ages of five and seven, I was sexually abused, and being a, a little girl, it's hard to understand how something like that can happen and why that happens, and that left me with this large hole um, in my heart, and it just felt like a, a gaping wound that... I didn't understand what to do with it. And so I just did what I thought was best, and I hid, and I tried to fill it with everything I could, from, from food to partying to boys. Um, I knew that Jesus was my Savior. I'd been saved at a young age, but I didn't understand how a good God could let that happen. And so I wrestled with just being so angry with God, but also knowing that I needed him. And so I would try to come back, and I would try to reconcile my relationship with Christ. But whenever I would get close, I was always reminded that God didn't really love me. If he really loved me, he wouldn't have let this happen. And so I would, I would go away, and, and I would go back into partying and back into promiscuity, and I remember the day I hit rock bottom thinking I can't go any lower than this. And that's when God really reminded me that no matter how far down I go into my pit, I'm never going to be too far for him to reach down and grab me. So, so what was it that finally helped you break that cycle? You know, you have this moment with God where you, you realize you can't dig yourself out. So what was it that helped you break that cycle? Um, God speaks to me a lot with mental pictures. Um, and I remember the day I was standing in my bathroom, and I had been ignoring him on this topic for so long, and he just so clearly showed me how I was letting the sin I had been ignoring in my life, how I was letting it affect me. I was letting it affect every area of my life. And I was unwilling to surrender that to him. And I, I realized, I'm trying to make sure I don't go on to the next question. Um, I realized that I didn't know how to feed myself. I mean, I had been in the church for 30 years, and 
I don't know how to feed myself with God's word. And um, I had to go to Steve and, and sheepishly ask him, can you show me how to study my Bible? Like, I, I don't know how to do that. Um, and, and he did. He was very gracious, and he showed me how to feed myself with God's word, which was the only thing I needed to do. Very good. There were also other people that came around you at that time. Tell us a little bit about that experience as well. Um, so hiding. Hiding was what I did. Hiding was what I knew. I would never talk about this. I've only started opening up even to Steve in the last probably seven years. And so um, as God was stirring in me to, to find women I could trust, when we got to River Rock, he began to show me um, people that I could open up to, people that I could share my story with, and people who would pray for me, but also challenge me. I remember sitting in my sweet friend's living room, and she's telling me, I love you, but I hear you saying this. And it sounds like you don't really, truly trust God. And I didn't need someone to tickle my ears. I needed someone to lovingly present me with the truth. So as you've continued to walk with God, as you continue to find hope in him, um, how has this changed your every day, or how is it changing how you live every day? Um, I see now why God didn't give me victory in this area beforehand. I needed to be firmly and deeply rooted in his word, because it's not if the enemy comes to take you back. It's when the enemy comes. So I have to daily set my mind in where is my heart inclined to? Am I inclined to God? Am I pursuing him? Am I allowing myself to really ingest his word? And I found that I really, for the first time, I like myself. I hated myself for so long, and I assumed that God did too. But God didn't look at me and say, why can you not get yourself together? Like, pull yourself together, lady. You're a grown woman. God never did that. He looked at me and said, you're my daughter and you're hurt. Let me heal you. And he did. So what would you say to maybe those who are followers of Jesus that are here today and they're, they're struggling with um, living in the hope of the resurrection, living in this hope that God provides through his son Jesus? Um, I know it's scary. And I know it's painful. And you're looking at your past mistakes that you've made and mistakes or, and things that other people have done to you. And it's very painful. I'm not going to minimize how much it hurts to go back into that and to walk through those memories and the trauma and, and abuse or whatever it is. It's very scary and it's very painful. But God is so gentle and he's so loving and he will just very carefully, one wound at a time, pull out what he needs to pull out when you're ready. And I would say, I will go back through that in a second to get to where I am now. Every minute I spent climbing out of that pit I was knocked into has been worth it to get back up to where I am right now. Because I realized that I wasn't very effective working for God. God created us to be his soldiers. He created us to do things on planet Earth that Jesus wasn't capable of because... He needed his church body to do it. He wanted us to do it. And 
I needed to be fully restored so that I could go and do the things that Jesus wants me to do. And lastly, what would you say to those who have, who have yet to put their trust in Jesus Christ and believe in the death and resurrection? Don't, don't wait. Don't wait for one more second. I know the feelings of longing and searching and wondering what is the point of all this on planet Earth. But there's so much sweet victory that you gain from accepting Christ. There's so much joy that you gain from being a part of a body. And again, I would go through all it over again just to have Jesus in my life, peace in my heart, no more longing, no more searching. There's no hunger in my spirit. The only thing that's there is just a desire for more of God and more of his word. All right. Thank you, Renee. We give her a hand. Thank you, Don. Christ's death and resurrection still has meaning today, still brings hope today. I want to draw our attention back to verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it, and you are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believe for no purpose. Paul is reminding them of the gospel that brings salvation. And what we have to realize is that Christ's death and resurrection is the basis for our hope. It's the only thing that elevates us beyond the stuff of this world that gives us great hope. If God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, he can raise your dead marriage. He can raise the dead relationship with your children. He can heal that wound from abuse. He can heal whatever past. He can take your life, no matter how far gone it seems at the moment, and he can raise that from the dead and give it new life. And what I love about the gospel is this. Paul says that the gospel is not something we get over. It's not something that we trusted in back then. It's something we stand on now. As followers of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you this morning. Are you standing on the gospel? Are you standing forgiven, Paul says, that we're saved? And he says that you're, continually, you're taking your stand on it. And in verse 2, he says, you are also saved by it. The way that that verse appears in the original language, it's, it's that you are being saved by it, referring to our sanctification. That's just a big word, big way of saying that we're becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. We're, we're getting better and better at following him. We're not sinless. We're not perfect. But we're growing in that. That he's changing our lives. And Paul says, guys, hey, the gospel wasn't something that you just believed back then. It's something you're supposed to stand in now. The hope of the resurrection is for now. Not just someday. And I want to encourage us who are followers of Jesus this morning. I, I'd ask you this. Does your life reflect one that is living in the hope of the resurrection? Or are you like the Corinthians who are still trying to fill your life with this other stuff? 
I want to challenge you to, to live in the hope of the resurrection. Live out that reality. And then take that reality to other people. Share that hope that you have with them. For those of you this morning who are here who have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, earlier we talked about the brokenness that we live in. The reality that our relationship with God is is broken and that we live in that brokenness and you're feeling that emptiness and you've tried all the other stuff. You've tried the money. You've tried the, the power. You've tried sex and relationships and you've tried substances to fill that void. You've tried coming to church and reading your Bible and praying, but there's something continually missing. And I'm telling you that something is faith in a Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And it's only through trusting him that we gain that hope. I'm not saying your life is going to be perfect. You just heard Renee share that she already had faith in Jesus Christ and she still experienced these things. But it was learning to continually preach that gospel to herself that she was reminded of that. So the question is, how do, how do I receive that? Well, Scripture tells us, Paul says, hey, you received the gospel. And that's the first thing we have to do. We have to believe that Jesus was the sinless Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and on the third day was raised from the dead. And we, we receive that, we believe that. And as we do that, what happens is we, we transfer our trust, we turn Sometimes scripture calls this repentance, but we turn from trusting in our own goodness, our own stuff, to transferring our trust to Jesus Christ. And then we begin to follow him. We're called not to just, yeah, I got my get out of hell free card, but we're called to follow him. And as we do, he begins to change our lives. We, we get to know him as our savior and we follow him as our Lord. And when we do, scripture tells us that we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And the beautiful thing is that our relationship with God is restored. And we have hope not just for someday, but we have hope for today. We have hope for this life because God gives our life now new meaning and a new purpose. And that purpose is to grow in him and then to go to others and share what we've experienced with them. Because we know that their hope can be strengthened because of our hope and our faith. And this morning is the worship team comes back up. I want to encourage you. No matter where you are this morning, I believe that every single person here has a next step that God wants you to take. I believe that, that whether you've been in church your whole life or maybe this is your first time in church ever or for the first time in a long time, I believe that God has a next step for you to take. I'm going to ask that our, our elders are going to be uh, on this row here and their wives that are in the room and my wife and I will be down here. If you're a believer this morning, you are a follower of Jesus, you know you have that faith in Jesus Christ, but you're struggling with some emptiness. You're struggling to find the hope. Would you let us pray with you? Would you just come forward and let us pray with you? We would love to pray with you. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're hearing about Jesus and for the first time it's making sense and you're saying yes yes to Jesus I want that hope in my life I want my sins forgiven I want a restored relationship with God and I want a new purpose would you come forward and let us know that or if you're here and just say you know what I, I, I want to know more I still have questions I'm not ready to take that step of faith yet I, I just want to know more you can come forward and we'll pray for you also our, our elders are going to go ahead and move
to this first level here with their wives, and my wife and I will be down here. Will you guys stand and sing with us? me mm-hmm. 